In the first of a two-part interview, we speak to Professor Peter Hudis about Marxist humanism, imperialism, and Franz Fanon. A few months ago, we sat down with Peter Hudis, professor at Oakton Community College in Illinois, and author of Franz Fanon, Philosopher of the Barricades, and Marx's Concept of the Alternative to Capitalism. He is also editor of Verso's Complete Works of Rosa Luxemburg. We sat down in part one to discuss Marxist humanism, imperialism, and Franz Fanon. I'm Rene Moya. I'm joined by my co-host, Stefan Hamel. Hi. Our guest this afternoon is Professor Peter Hudis of Oakton Community College. Professor Hudis, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Uh, Professor Hudis, I'd like to start by learning a little bit about your politics. Uh, You're a self-described Marxist humanist and a founding member of the International Marxist Humanist Organization, or IMHO. The term Marxist humanist was a phrase coined by Raya Donayevskaya. I know you had a close working relationship with Raya. Can you talk a little bit about her legacy, uh, since many of the listeners might not be familiar with her work? Mm-hmm. Yes, Ryd Denievskaya was somebody who had a very interesting navigation through the American left in many respects. She's originally from Ukraine. Her family left during the Russian Civil War in the early 20s, uh, and she ended up in Chicago as a teenager. And she had joined the communist movement as a young, uh, young person. Um, but by 1929, 1927 actually, she was expelled from the Communist Youth League at the time. She might have been 15 years old at the time or something because the party came in with a proclamation that Leon Trotsky has just been exiled or expelled from the Communist Party and the branch has to endorse what Stalin did. She didn't know who Trotsky or Stalin was really or any of these people, but she simply said, well, don't we have to read what Comrade Trotsky says before uh, we vote to condemn him? Uh, interesting, naive question of a 15-year-old, whereupon she was thrown down a flight of steps. Uh, make a long story short, she became one of the early figures within the Trotskyist movement in the United States and then eventually by 1937 uh, became Leon Trotsky. Uh, Russian language secretary down in, uh, in Coyacan, uh, in Mexico. Um, in 1939, however, she, began, she broke from Trotsky over the Hitler-Stalin pact. The Trotsky's position was that Russia was still a worker state, though degenerate, and even though terrible things were being done by Stalin, Soviet Union was historically, economically progressive compared to Western capitalism, so you had to defend the Soviet Union against any uh, possible threats or whatever. Uh, she could not accept that position uh, when the Soviet Union is in alliance with Hitler. And uh, basically, she had developed over the next five or seven years or so through original research, a study of the Russian economy to try to demonstrate that if you analyze the Soviet-type societies through the lens of Marxist capital, you'll discover it operates according to the same logic of capital that prevails in private competitive free market capitalism, albeit in a somewhat different form. A very provocative thesis to be putting forth in the middle of World War II when, uh, of course, Soviet Union is allied with the United States, then later in fighting fascism, did make her a very popular figure. But the most important part of what she was doing on state capitalism was not only recovering some of the central categories of Marxist capital to examine the contemporary world, but it was also that it led her to um, get a different view of Marxism and Marx's work, because in the course of her research, she discovered the 1844 manuscripts of Marx, which had not been published yet in English. She found them uh, in the original uh, edition that was published in Moscow in 1927. 
And she proceeded to translate these very famous humanist essays of Marx into English. And she discovered uh, that uh, Marx himself was critical in his early, early part of his career of what he called crude, unthinking, stupid, vulgar communism. That is the view that you change capitalism by nationalizing property, uh, uh, abolishing the free market, centralizing power into the state under the hegemony of the Communist Party. And this is what creates the transition to socialism. And she held that Marx already was attuned to the deficiencies of this approach way back in his uh, 1840s. And so she began to question a lot of the fundamentals of what had happened to post-Marx Marxism and why Marxism, a theory of liberation, became a system of status domination and oppression. Now, I come on the scene much later than this, of course. <laughs> so this is all very, so to speak, for me, ancient history. My entry into the radical movement was about uh, some two decades after she had already gone on to form in the United States this philosophy, which he called Marxist humanism, which was an effort to return to the humanism of Marx. But as I hinted earlier, most people of a socialist humanist persuasion base themselves in the early Marx. They say, well, here's where he called himself a humanist, where he explicitly criticized both capitalism and what he called crude communism. But they didn't have much to say about the mature Marx of Das Kapital, his economic works. Mm. That didn't seem to fit into this humanistic perspective. Mm. But she knew capital very well. She had done this analysis of the Soviet economy based on its central value theoretic categories. So she concluded that actually the most humanistic dimension of Marx is precisely his critique of political economy and his, what you find in Das Kapital in all three volumes. And this made a big impact on people like Herbert Marcuse at the time, uh, who she was in correspondence with. And he had written her a letter in the late 1950s when a book, Marxism and Freedom, her first book was about to come off the press to say, you're the first person to show the humanism and dialectic within capital, not just the young Marx. So um, I come on the scene now two decades after she's elaborated this philosophy. And what am I? I'm just a young, very uninformed, uneducated activist uh, <laughs> uh, in New York City. I'm from the Bronx. I was involved in, uh, I saw racism and uh, all forms of uh, horrendous uh, discrimination from a very young age. I was very turned off by it. Found my way navigating through different tendencies of the left. Didn't find myself very satisfied with the answers I, uh, they gave me to various questions I had. How could you call the Soviet Union a worker state when it no workers are running anything in the Soviet Union. Uh, why do we still have to support Lenin's concept of Vanguard Party when it has never been a Lenin's Vanguard Party since 1917 that's been successful? Uh, and et cetera, et cetera. So um, I found myself in a situation where um, eventually I was uh, just put out of several socialist organizations because of my annoying questions. Uh, and I um, decided that, hey, you know, it's about time I got to know some Marxist theory because I just had kind of intuitive sense of what was wrong with what I was encountering in the left, but I had no way to justify my, my skepticism or my, my concerns. And I came across completely accidentally her work and I got to meet her uh, and um, I spent some time in Detroit where she resided and I became active in the first iteration of a Marxist humanist organization, News and Letters Committees, and I moved to Chicago in the mid-80s, and I served as her secretary for the last couple of years of her life. Uh, we're going to dive a little deeper into both your work and its connections to Raya's writing, uh, mm -hmm. perhaps a little later in the discussion. But for now, I guess the general question I have is, uh, to what extent do you think that your work somehow operates as a continuation of her own? Uh, do you think that your academic output is wedded to her political tendency? or the Well, I... I 
I should let you know that I uh, entered academia through an unusual route. I didn't plan to become an academic. I spent my first uh, 20 years uh, after getting an undergraduate degree as an activist and as an organizer. Um, and I got a degree in Latin American studies along the way, a master's degree, because uh, I was very interested in issues of Latin America. And I did some work and theoretical work on Latin America during the time of uh, you know the 1980s and early 90s and such in the events in Central America. And also, I was very interested always in the Andean region. But um, when it came to academia, I, I fell into academia kind of accidentally. And um, I was giving a lecture at a college and a professor came over when I was not in academia. I was simply giving a lecture on, on actually a critique of imperialism and the U.S. role in invading Iraq in 2003. And a professor comes up to me and says, where are you teaching? I said, nowhere right now. And she says, uh, call me in the morning. So make a long story short, through a rather circuitous route, I ended up with a, going back to school, getting a Ph.D. in philosophy and uh, entering academia this way. But this was simply the day job, as it were. Uh, it's still a very important part of my political commitment, my teaching and my teaching at a community college with mainly working class and immigrant students. I think there's a very this is what I chose to do. But um, my intellectual interests really are an effort to try to bring Marxist humanism or to, with others into the 21st century. One of the biggest problems any philosophy has, I found, or any theoretical perspective is the risk of it being turned into an ideology. Uh, that you rest upon conclusions and formulations developed by a, a great thinker or a great group of thinkers or an organization, and then you rest content with just applying those conclusions instead of dealing with new realities as they emerge and grasping the movement of the thing itself uh, and penetrating dialectically what that thing is about. I want to ask about that, actually, bringing Marxist mm -hmm. humanism into the 20th century. I want to ask about value theory in particular. Mm -hmm. And what the role of, at least what's at stake for value theory now, we're pretty far removed from the end of the Soviet mm -hmm. bloc. Mm -hmm. um, and it looked like for Dunyevskaya, the core of her interest lay in a critique of the economy, or at least mm -hmm. how the economy was interpreted in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. So outside of that, I mean, it's up to you. Are we outside the era of state capitalism? And if we are, what's the value and what's at stake for value theory today? Obviously, when she was writing this in the 40s and 50s and 60s, uh, the questions of state capitalism, critique of the Soviet economy, critique of Mao's China, etc., this had a very relevant pressing political importance because much of the left was following these regimes in one way or another, implicitly or explicitly, and uh, was falling into all kinds of dead ends politically because of this. But I think the greatest virtue and benefit of her theory of state capitalism and her critique of Soviet-type societies based on an understanding of Marxist theory of value and her claim that the capitalist law of value operates in putatively socialist regimes is not what it says about the Soviet Union or China. It's what it does to recapture the categories that were central to Marx's work. Now, why is that important? Marx's Capital is not a book about 19th century capitalism. Marxist capitalism, in my view, is tracing out or thinking out the ultimate logical expression of a society based on the domination of capital. And true, at the end of the book, there's historical illustrations of that process. But he is, especially in the first chapters, saying here are the fundamental elements that drive capitalist society, such as augmenting wealth in monetary form, that is value, as an end in itself. And here is the kind of society we're going to end up with if this becomes universalized, if this becomes the trajectory of the planet as a whole. That wasn't what the world looked like in Marx's day. When he finishes writing Capital and he dies, right, the world does not look like what he's describing in Capital. Much of the world was not inf uh, invaded by capital, capitalism yet or the capital relation. Today's world is the manifestation of that logical 
trajectory he was tracing out. So if we want to make sense simply on an initial level of where the hell the world is and why it's going the way it is, we have to look at Marx much deeper than simply class struggle, much deeper than, oh, private property, get rid of that nationalized property, get deeper than a critique of the market. All these things are important, but they're epiphenomenal. For Marx's concern is that there is a certain trajectory wherein human relationships become subjected to an abstract form of domination that we generate unknowingly and at the same time dominates us and our activity in a very distorted, alienated way. And unless some specific radical social transformations are affected, this will continue on to its ultimate logic of basically self-destruction. Uh, and by the way, at the end of his life, Marx is even looking at the ecological implications of this. Uh, I know that you cover a lot of this in Marx's concept of the alternative to capitalism, the book mm -hmm. that you wrote in 2012. I did have just a very quick question about uh, the mm -hmm. geography of capitalism, as you just described. Capitalism today in the 21st century, kind of fulfilling the, mm -hmm. the, the rubric or the model of capitalism that Marx uh, was at pains to come to grips with in mm -hmm. the mid-19th century. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think there are any uh, areas geographically of the world where capitalism hasn't actually penetrated uh, fully? Yes, Absolutely. And this is where my interest in uh, Latin America dovetails with my interest in value theory. Two years ago, I spent the summer in Highland Bolivia and southern Peru in the Andean region uh, doing the research on indigenous struggles in the Andean region, and uh, especially Aymara um, and uh, some Quechua communities in southern Peru and some in northern Bolivia. And if you go there, what you will discover is some the Ayul, uh, this uh, communal form of uh, originally a property relationship and a communal way of working the property uh, in the Andes region. But now it's been expanded to a kind of a extended family communal network mm. of both labor and services. Uh, it, it still exists. OK, I mean, now it's infiltrated by all sorts of forms of commodification. But at the same time, it resists in many ways commodification. So you have a situation where and if you go to uh, El Alto, which is above La Paz, the mm -hmm. capital of Bolivia, 14,000 feet up, that's where you'll land on your airplane if you come into Bolivia, because La Paz can't have an airport, too many mountains. There's a million and a half Aymar, mainly proletarian Aymaras living in the city. 85% um, of the population is Aymara proletarians who used to be peasants 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Some are still peasants and they're proletarians at the same time because right. they work on the farm, they go back, they work in the city, then they go back to the farm for a section of the year. And what's the connection that binds this rural-urban connection together? The Ayul structure, the communal pre-capitalist form that existed long before the Europeans got there. And it still exists even after centuries of efforts to destroy it and privatize it and commodify it. And that's a nodal point of resistance. You can't understand the indigenous struggles and why Bolivia is, has the most radical labor and peasant movements in Latin America without understanding the persistence of this communal forms. And this is one of the big mistakes I think orthodox Marxists made. They assumed mechanically that because Western capitalism in Western Europe kind of eliminated these communal pre-capitalist formations relatively easily and quickly, therefore this would happen in due course in the entire course of the world and the world would become, so to speak, to use that horrible expression, flattened out. By commodification completely. But if you look at the texture, and it's not happening. Now, what I find fascinating, at the end of his life, Marx is looking at some of this exact material in the communal forms in Russia, communal forms in India. Uh, he studies the Incan civilization, has some interesting notes on it, even studies Zulu civilization of South Africa, and has interesting notes on this, where he is himself drawing out the points of non-commodification and resistance to this logic of capital and value production that he sees as potentially potential sources of revolutionary resistance 
to the universalization of capital. So yeah, there's, it, there's no question that the world is predominantly capitalist now, and even relationships that have pre-capitalist elements in them are still living in a capitalistic environment to a large degree. But um, we have to be sensitive to the different ways resistance gets articulated. Capital tries to commodify everything, but it can't commodify everything. This is a good time to switch to the topic of imperialism then. Mm -hmm. We've just been talking about the geographical articulation of capitalist development. I wonder if clearing up some of the language around imperialism can be aided by shifting the discussion from, uh, let's say, country of origin, uh, right, you know, uh, America versus Russia, et cetera, to an economic characterization of what imperialism is. I take that this was the triumph of Lenin's mm-hmm. analysis of imperialism. Yeah. Does it still hold up? Are we st- I mean, in the age of global supply chains, are we still in something like an imperialist phase of capitalism as Lenin understood it? Well, I don't think as Lenin understood it, although I think it was an important book written for its time, because, uh, of course, he's referring to monopoly capitalism as the economic driver of imperialism. We're not in that era. He lived before the era of state capitalism, and now we're in an era of this kind of polyglot state capitalism, neoliberalism, which I'll get back to in a minute, uh, maybe in a response to another question to tease that out a little bit. But um, I think that the best way to think about imperialism is capitalism is such that it is driven to expand inexorably. It has to self-expand. Capital is self-expanding value. It has to expand vertically and horizontally. It expands vertically by commodifying ever new sectors of human relationships in order to turn more items of material wealth into abstract value that can be monetarized. And it does so horizontally by occupying spatial zones and bringing them into the determination of the logic of capital. So it's operating in these two different levels at once. That's how I understand imperialism today, right, is the United States is still, the, along with the European Union and Japan, etc., these are the major poles of world capital, and they undertake political policies in response to this unconscious, irremedial drive on the part of capital to self-expand. Of course, there's a big gap between the general economic tendency and what specific steps or actions are taken to implement imperialistic policies on a political level, because that always depends on an assortment of contingent circumstances. But I still think what, what we're really seeing is, yeah, there's still a drive for single world domination. It's just that now all the powers are much weaker. And power is much more dispersed, and the U.S. economy has been facing serious economic problems. It's hollowing itself out. Same thing is happening in the EU. And they're having great trouble exerting their domination on a global scale, which exactly what makes them push harder to dominate on a global scale because they're operating from a position of kind of economic weakness. The basic structure of it's like capitalism is kind of eating its own tail, right? It's kind of like an what's that image of that animal eating itself from the other side, right? It's undermining the conditions of its own ability to reproduce itself. And this is showing up in what we now have in the White House. I guess I'd like to pivot now to your latest work on France Fanon. Uh, I wanted to know how your perspective on Fanon changed the more that you actually read up about him. And in conjunction with that, uh, how much did your perspective on Fanon uh, change the more that you traveled uh, around discussing Fanon in different contexts? Yeah, this is a really interesting question because I didn't plan on even doing a book on Fanon originally. <laughs> I mean, I was approached by a publisher who said, uh, we're doing this series in Revolutionary Lives, and would you like to write an intellectual biography of a major leftist thinker? And I had a couple of suggestions. I said, oh, I think I can write on this person, that person. He said, well, maybe not that. I've got somebody else doing this. And so I said, he says, what else could you would you like to do? And I've always been interested in Fanon, but I had never published anything on Fanon. So I said, well, I think I can do an intellectual biography 
autobiography of Fanon, but I'll need at least six months, you know, give me a little time. And I did it. Now, I had no idea that by the time the book came out, it was just like a few months after Ferguson broke, right? And there's this huge explosion of interest, of course, in not only critical theories of race, but the relationship of race and class, race, class, and capitalism, and a, re- a new generation of people I'm encountering, very young people, especially in Chicago, teenagers, etc., who are reading Franz Fanon to understand what's happening. So that, at first, I, when I first started working on the book, you know, you know, when you write, the hardest thing is the beginning, right? So I said, well, how am I going to begin this book? What justifies it? What necessitates it other than the fact that the publisher asked me to do it? And I said, I'm going to put that away. I can't get, I, I just don't know how to do it yet. But I just started going over Fanon's life and running his ideas. But what was happening on the streets kind of focused attention in my mind. And now we have a Fanon Renaissance, not because of my book. It's because it was right for the moment. There's six new Fanon books out in the last year and a half in English alone. What changed in my, as I worked on the book and especially afterwards is I knew when I started the book that I wanted to do a book on Fanon because I wanted to recapture Fanon for the humanist Marxist tradition and take him out of this context where he's restricted. He's made like a precursor of post-colonial theory and postmodernism, which always turned my stomach because I just don't think that's where Fanon was. And I wanted to try to explore his links, critical links, because he's not in any sense a typical Marxist. What was his relationship to Marxism, issues of class, issues of alienation, etc.? And how did he try to go in places Marx did not go, such as the psychic issue, the psychic dimension of racial alienation and its internalization? What I find is there's a huge discussions going on now about the relationship of race and class that are very different than the ones that we had 10, 20, 30 years ago, because it's increasingly evident, especially those in Europe, I think, in America, we had a little head start in this because it's been true for longer, that class relations in certain historical contexts are shaped by racial determinations. So you can't think of race and class in certain historical contexts, not everywhere and not every place, but in certain historical contexts, it becomes very hard to effectively critique class domination without understanding the integrality of how racism shapes that very form of domination and gives it a different coloring and a different texture. And this is what people are confronting with the immigration crisis in Europe. This is what people are confronting with the resurgence of this neo, neo this populist right throughout Europe and so many other places of the world. And so I think Fanon uh, speaks to this moment. And uh, I don't think it's an accident. The first tr- book that uh, my Fanon book was translated into is Greek. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is the country in Europe that has the largest immigration <coughs> rights movement. In the middle of the refugee crisis and the like. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. A number of writers have, like Adolf Reed and Cedric Johnson, mm-hmm. have attempted to change the discourse on race um, by trying, in their words, to uncouple a political constituency from an ethnic nationalism. Are they missing something? Are they undialectical in some way? Or do you generally follow them in, in wanting to separate between, uh, between an interracial trade unionism, for example, uh, and a form of black power? Well, I think they're reacting against what they're reacting against is, is good, but the way they're reacting against it is not so good. What they're reacting against is a kind of identity politics that uh, subsumes issues of class under issues of ethnic identity. And there's a lot of that out there, especially in the United States and especially in liberal academia, where it's kind of a pervasive kind of a a very narrow kind of identity-based politics that uh, and if you raise the question of class or you raise the question of Marx, well, but he's a white European, you know, we can't be discussing him. That's an exaggerated expression of this, but know how this works. But I think their response to this is not helpful, uh, frankly, because if you look closely, what is Reed really advocating? He's really returning, he's really advocating a kind of purist model of the New Deal. 
right? I mean, in other words, we should put aside these sectional conflicts and a constant emphasis on them and return to the fundamentals of class analysis and um, involve ourselves in the political process by putting forth concrete demands along class-based lines. But the problem, there's a lot of problems in that approach because people are experiencing their class domination through racial and gendered forms of oppression. And to, to think that you can separate them out so neatly is, I think, a mistake. And also, I think, fundamental problem I see, although it's more hidden in the analysis, is the assumption that we can, through a proper class analysis, get to a kind of politics that could galvanize people around Keynesian redistribution. I think that the era of, you know, progressive liberalism is at an end. Hmm. I think it's been at an end for 20 years, frankly. Uh, I don't think in Keynesian redistribution measures, as much as I think Bernie has done great service to the left by bringing socialism back onto the agenda and done many other things, but that's not a viable alternative to capitalism, and it doesn't go deep enough. So ironically, even though they're talking about class, the critique of the, the question of class doesn't really break from the traditional Marxist left in some respects. I absolutely want to talk about the relationship between neo-Keynesianism and neoliberalism, and I want to mm -hmm. ask about the permanence of neoliberalism. But mm -hmm. that's next. Before okay. that, mm -hmm. I want to ask about, um, look, Fanon certainly thinks that there is a role that ethnic nationalism of some sort plays mm -hmm. in, let's say, the emergence of class consciousness, mm -hmm. broadly understood. Right. Is that part of what Johnson and Reed are missing? Is, it a fun, is there a Fanonian insight? On the question of race and class? On the relationship between ethnic nationalism as mm -hmm. some kind of precursor for a broader humanism, say, a class consciousness? Well, Fanon is a very interesting figure on this issue because he's very specific and particularistic. He's not developing a generalistic theory about the relationship of race and class. Um, what Fanon is, is trying to account for is, first of all, his experience as a black man from the Caribbean and what that means. And then uh, what is the experience of blacks in Europe, like when he was studying in France, and what does their form of oppression mean? And what does, how does one respond to it? Then most of all, of course, his experience in Africa, right? And the African revolutions where, yes, there is a nationalist moment of this revolutionary upsurge that Fanon analyzes in class terms, right? Fanon looks at the African revolutions in Wretched of the Earth, and he says what? He says that, yes, we need the political independence and national struggle for independence is a progressive revolutionary movement and demand. But there is a great risk that this movement for national independence and nationalistic movements in general uh, in Africa will, re will simply stagnate into a bourgeois democratic form of governance or uh, a governance that's not even bourgeois democratic, but it's governed by the national bourgeoisie, uh, who, because they cannot uh, uh, create genuine uh, economic development based on their class position and the objective conditions in Africa, will revert back to tribalism, religious fundamentalism, et cetera, et cetera. But he says that this moment of national identification and solidarity around national demands is the conduit to a new humanism. And the, the context of what he's trying to do here is he's asking himself the question. It's very clear in The Wretched of the Earth. He says, the question facing the African revolutions today, I'm quoting it pretty much directly, is the same one the European leftists were debating 50 years ago. Now, when I read that, I say, what the hell question is he talking about? 1961 minus 50 is 1911. Okay, this is Lenin, Luxembourg, Trotsky, Montov, Mer. I mean, what is the debate that they're having? Well, the debate was a permanent revolution. Can an underdeveloped society skip the phase of capitalistic development and go directly 
from pre-capitalist to socialistic communist phase of development or does have to suffer the vicissitudes of a long period of capitalistic development of the national bourgeoisie. So Fanon is really, that's really what the Wretch of the Earth is about. He's trying to think out how the nationalist movement can overcome its own nationalist moment and address this question of how to effectuate a revolution that bypasses the capitalistic stage of development. Now, he doesn't have an answer to that all worked out in the book. He dies after all, you know, three days after the book comes off the press. He doesn't have a chance to finish this kind of question that he's raising. But that's the question of the age. And to be clear, he did have access to the debates that the Second International had. Not only did he have access to them, but we know from Alice Cherky, who is, uh, wrote a memoir on Fanon, and she worked with him in the psychiatric clinic in Blida, Jeanville, in Algeria. Uh, she herself was a, a practicing psych- a psychiatrist. That he, as she put it, he carried around, he got them from Daniel Guerin, by the way, the French gay Marxist anarchist uh, activist and theoretician. Uh, he was a friend of his, stayed at Guerin's house very often when he went to France. Daniel Guerin gave him the, the transcripts, uh, which hadn't even been republished in French yet, I don't think, of the first three congresses of the Communist International. And she says, Fanon carried them around endlessly. We could read them whenever he had a, like a little moment of spare time in between his clinical examinations or whatnot. And he's reading about this. And why is he doing this in the late 50s? You know, and what does it have to do with his political project? Well, this has something very important to do with it. I actually have a follow-up question that has to do, I guess, with the applicability of Fanon today yes. uh, to two different contexts. So yeah. On the one hand, you actually have uh, Africa itself, right? Uh, yeah. When we're talking about uh, capitalist underdevelopment, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that question that you said that Fanon was trying to struggle with, the question mm-hmm. of whether we could skip you know, capitalist development, mm-hmm. how uh, relevant do you think that question still is in the context of Africa on the one hand? And on the other hand, on the question of the United States, you know, how relevant do you think Fanon is to any of these, you know, p- potentially incipient revolutionary uh, movements here in the United States? The other question I want to nail you on or ask you a little bit about is the question of violence. Uh, I know that it's a very simple, obvious question that everyone always brings up when people uh, discuss Fanon. Mm-hmm. I'd like to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, in order, uh, the first one is it's not an accident that where Fanon uh, really came back to life in Africa following his death 20 years later. Uh, with South Africa, uh, with the Soweto uprising and Steve Biko, the black consciousness movement that really brought Fanon's ideas uh, back into a widespread discussion in a, in a mass movement. So you have to ask what was so important about Fanon's work? Why did it speak to that moment to this generation of revolutionaries? Uh, well, if you look at what happened to South Africa, what happened? The ANC allies itself with the Communist Party. The Communist Party, by the way, still controls one third of the seats of the African National Congress and South African Parliament. Uh, people don't realize that. You walk into South Africa and you walk into the ANC headquarters mm-hmm. and there's all you know, posters of Marx and Lenin and everything else and hammer and sickles everywhere because right. uh, that was put up by the CCP. Is, uh, and yet these are neoliberals who have been pushing for 20 years this uh, gear program and everything else is complete structural adjustment along neoliberal lines on the grounds of what was the ANC's perspective from the beginning is, well, as uh, I once somebody once told me uh, from the ANC, when I got a little heated discussion, it was before they came to power, uh, when still, Mandela was still in jail, he says, we're going to try to do in South Africa, when we come to power, what the Indian National Congress did when it came to power, create a black bourgeoisie. Now, this is the black consciousness movement wanted to go in a very, in a very different direction. They lost out to the ANC, but this is Fanon's ideas today in South Africa have a lot of resonance precisely because he was addressing this question, which still is facing South Africa, of course, right? How do you challenge the notion that neoliberalism is an inevitable phase of development for the developing world? That's a big question in a lot of places. And secondly, 
you know, one thing I discovered, I, I kind of knew it beforehand, but, you know, when you talk to somebody like Felipe Quispe, who's a major indigenous Aymara activist, people consider him, some people call him the Malcolm X of Aymara nationalism in, in Bolivia. Mm-hmm. He reminded me when I was there, he said, well, you know, I learned my ideas from Faistor Anaga, who was the founder of uh, Indianism, right, back in the 70s. And I realized that's right. And I went back to my copy and I looked at it. And Faisal Renaga, in his book, uh, you know, The Philosophy of the Indigenous, he reproduces whole passages from Fanon's Wretched of the Earth, verbatim, right? About four pages in a row. Uh, he drew his ideas from that. Uh, the second thing in terms of the United States, I find there what Fanon really speaks to is something very few Marxists have had the patience to endure. And maybe this goes, again, back to your Adolf Reed question, and that is the internal, subtle spiritual crisis that racism creates in the living individual. Fanon does a kind of phenomenology of the lived experience of racism. And what, what, what does that do to your sense of dignity, your sense of self, your sense of worth? And how do you recover that given the all-pervasiveness of this racial domination? It's one thing to critique racism on political economic grounds. That's all great. We all do that. But Fanon had this ability to address internalized oppression, inferiority complex, right? Mm-hmm. He's looking at these things in almost clinical terms. And I find that a lot of young people, they pick up Fanon, especially black skin, white masks, which is much more red in the United States than Wretched of the Earth. And they look at that and they say, holy cow. Now, one little side note, when I came to L.A. last year, I I talked after my Fanon book came out, but it wasn't uh, at an international Marxist humanist meeting. It was a meeting at a local library. During my presentation, I was trying to make a point and I was trying to think fast enough to give an example. So I said, well, let's just make believe you're from Uganda, you're from Kampala, Uganda, and then you come to the United States and blah, blah, blah. How would you perceive race and racism and social construction of race? <laughs> when discussion time comes, a woman stands up, black woman, and says, um, it's funny you mentioned that because I'm, I'm from Kampala, Uganda. <laughs> and, <laughs> I remember this moment yeah. vividly. And she says, uh, she says, um, you know, I never thought of myself as black in Africa because everybody's black. So nobody's black. Right. right. Uh, and I come to the United States and she says uh, the positive or negative implications are made every moment about my race. How do I get out of this? How do I break? And she asks this is a genuine question. How do I break out of this kind of prison I feel like I'm imposed in? She had never read Fanon for you. She didn't know who Fanon was. She was just walking down the hall of the library and saw the poster and looked interesting. So, I mean, we had a correspondence afterwards. But the point is, is that that's the kind of thing that really speaks. Now, your third point was about um, violence. But violence, before you, yes. you get that, uh, I think I had a very comparable experience uh, mm-hmm. when I was living in Europe for mm-hmm. about six or seven years. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that, in the U.S. context, I'm always very obviously, uh, you know, racialized or identified as yes. a Latino, very uh, rightly so. Uh, but traveling away from the United States, one of the yes. fascinating uh, uh, kind of uh, identity issues that one faces almost immediately is how people mark you uh, in different contexts. Right. So within, you know, traveling through South America, and I lived in South South America briefly, you get these moments where people identify you vaguely as someone from the Southern Cone, but mm-hmm. there were confusions as to whether you're Brazilian or whether you're potentially, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I don't know, a Colombian or Venezuel- Venezolano from mm-hmm. Venezuela. Uh, and in Europe, it was very different. From In Europe, I was either uh, oftentimes identified potentially for someone from Southern Asia um, and or from the Levant. <laughs> so uh, it's, yeah. it's an interesting kind of fish out of water uh, uh, yes. phenomenon, uh, I think, that even I felt, you know, yes. uh, in, in a different context. Yeah, this so this is the madness of the social construction of race, right? Absolutely. I, I, I mean, it's a senseless category, but it's a senseless category that takes on real material consequences. Indeed. So that's why you have to deal with it on its terms, right? So it's not, it's like, you know, when you study German philosophy, you know, there's two different types of uh, way of translating the word, two different ways of saying appearance, right? The shine, 
which is kind of like a false semblance, and then this Erscheinung, a necessary form of appearance. Well, racism is kind of Erscheinung, right? It's the Erscheinung of the capital relation in some respects. Um, violence, yeah, I mean, um, I think, frankly, much of what Fanon wrote about violence in Wretched of the Earth is spot on. I mean, the everyday life of capitalist society is violent. Uh, colonialism is the most violent thing, even when it's not violent uh, uh, in a physical sense. Um, uh, of course, Fanon, however, was trying to do more than that. Fanon was trying to think how can the uh, anti-colonial revolutions not stop short end up selling themselves out to the national bourgeoisie who's just going to keep them within this capitalist phase of development. Well, one way to make sure that doesn't happen is for them to keep their arms and to engage in violence not only against the colonial oppressors but also against their own, so to speak, native bourgeoisie when the time comes. Uh, and so he celebrated violence as curative in this sense, as part of a almost psychologically curative. I mean, I think that aspect of Fanon's work is much more questionable. I think that the redemptive or curative manifestations of violence are far more outweighed by the degrading and dehumanizing dimensions of violence. But as a Marxist, I have to tell you, uh, as a humanist, yes, as a humanist, uh, I don't see how there's ever going to be an overturning of the domination of capital through nonviolence. Uh, ultimately, the property classes are going to come back at us. They're not just going to take what they, you know, not to, when we say, okay, you know, he'll pay you so much for your, now go on vacation, permanent vacation and uh, <laughs> wherever, go to some island somewhere and enjoy the rest of it. But, but now we're taking it over. No, they're going to want to come back and take it back. Hmm. And this Fanon did understand that a revolution is only su as successful as it monopolizes the means of violence. Not because revolutions are violent necessarily, but because the counter-revolution is always violent. And it's always going to be a counter-revolution. Mm. And we can't fool ourselves in the United States. I mean, you look at what they've done to Lula. Lula was a pussycat compared to, uh, I mean, he let them do what they wanted. He didn't nationalize anybody. He didn't take away their money. He didn't even increase their taxes. He just said, give me enough room to do Bolsa Familia and raise the standard of living of the poorest. And they let him do that a while, for a while until the economy started to tank. And then they came after him like sharks. And right now he's currently undergoing a... a he's arrested. He's, right. he's not yes. a prison. So, will be soon. Yes. Absolutely. So, I mean, if they would do that to Lula, what are they going to do to a revolutionary leader? Who's, who, who, you know, I mean, so we have to be prepared for these things. So, I mean, I think it's a complex question for nonviolence, but I don't, I don't uncritically accept it, but I also don't dismiss it. To hear the second part of this interview on neoliberalism, alternatives to capitalism, and more, please subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash concrete media. Thank you.